um, let's maybe start off, uh, start off this way. Um, yeah, let's just start off with a question. Why no altar call? All right, one of the reasons that, um, that we're doing this tonight is because um, of the fact that for many, many years, in fact, as long as I can remember growing up at Edgewood, we always had an altar call at the end of the service. So you would run through the, uh, the order of service, uh, the sermon would come to an end, and then there would be uh, typically uh, what we would call, I think, a hymn of invitation. And the pastor would usually step down off of the platform and stand at the floor level here and basically extend an opportunity if there was anyone seated who wanted to make a profession of faith in Christ or who uh, intended or wanted to join the church as a member. All right, they had an opportunity to, to come forward and to make that known. All right, just for, just for the sake of clarity, most of what we're going to talk about tonight as it pertains to the altar call has to do with, with, um, with asking people to come forward to make a profession of faith. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to talk for, uh, so much about having people come forward who already are Christians and who are wanting to join the church. My primary focus is on the, the, um, the altar call as a way to profess faith. Okay, so what happens then is, at least as, as long as I can remember, and I think uh, mom can correct me, we came here, how old was I, three, four, five, two, 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 when we came here. So I don't even remember what was going on then. I'm sure it was all good because there was a lot of good going on in Edgewood. But as long as I can remember, there was always an altar call at the end of the service. Pastor Howe would have been uh, the pastor of uh, the lead pastor growing up here at Edgewood. Phenomenal pastor, loved the Lord, serious about God's word, preached faithfully and consistently for all the years that he was leading this church. Forever indebted to him personally, for our family, for the influence they had on my father, all right? My father comes in, succeeds uh, Pastor Howe, and he continues the practice of an altar call, and then I succeed my father, and there's no altar call, all right? That is at least in that span of time, how many years are we talking about? 30, 40 years, give or take, of, of altar calls, and then none, so in my transition into, into this role, it was interesting that um, uh, in the period of time when this was sort of in the process of examination and people were, were given an opportunity to come and to ask questions or to meet with me personally, there were, of the three or four people who actually met with me privately, typically there were two, two questions that everyone asked, and one of the two was, about the altar call. Why, why do we not do an altar call? And then that came up in the Q&A, you know, sort of town hall type forum sort of a thing. All right, most of that, I think, or at least I hope, was, was addressed when we did that, that Q&A all the way back at the beginning. But because I know, number one, that not everyone remembers everything that's said, shocker, right? Um, but number two, because we, we have, thankfully, by God's grace, we have new people coming in who would not have been part of that conversation to hear, and because some of these new people come in, they ask those same questions. I thought, well, as long as we're doing um, random topics, seemingly random topics, this would be a good one to address, all right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a couple... Um, uh, 
what's the what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, well, let me say a couple things up front so so nothing is misunderstood. No matter what you hear in the in the rest of what we say tonight, please don't hear me saying the following things. All right, I am not saying that to have an altar call is sinful. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have an altar call. What, what I would say, though, is based on the, the weight of Scripture and some genuine pastoral concerns, I'm not convinced that it is wise to have an altar call. And that's what, that's what I'm going to try to at least present to you tonight. So let me start up front and just say, in the best sort of way, in terms of points of agreement, right, what, why do people do an altar call in, at the end of a church service? And we want to say right up front that usually the motivation or the reasoning for an altar call, the motivation behind it is good and one that we could all, I think, across the board agree with. So if you go to your outline, here are points of agreement. Whether you have an altar call or not, we should all be able to agree on at least three things. Number one, that we desire to see conversions. We want to see people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Number two, we believe, whether you do an altar call or not, we believe that when you preach evangelistically, that you should include a call for sinners to repent and believe. That is to say, it is not enough, mere, well, I'm be careful how I say that. Along with, that's probably the better way, along with our declaration of salvation in Jesus Christ, there is then the call, in light of what God has done in Christ, to repent of one's sin, to put your trust in Christ, to essentially turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. That is a good and right thing to say to people who are hearing about the offer of salvation, to let them know that this work has been done and it is made effective in you by the work of God's Spirit as you repent and believe in the gospel message. So we want to see conversions. We want to give a call to, uh, a call to sinners to repent and believe. And number three, we do want to say, we do want to acknowledge and admit that conversion, genuine conversion, should include in some shape or form a profession of faith, right? If we confess him before men, he will confess us before his father, right? They're, they're no denying that. The question is, is not, there's no argument over those three points there. The question is whether or not the altar call or providing an altar call at the end of a service is the best way or the healthiest way or the wiser way to go about seeking or even promoting those kinds of responses. All right, everyone tracking with me so far? Okay, so as we have done over these last several weeks when we're talking about the, um, the elements of our worship service, we, we want to ask not merely, is there anything wrong with an altar call, all right? We want to ask, what is right about an altar call? Or, more specifically, 
can we find in Scripture an indication by example, or better yet, by way of precept or command, a teaching or a truth or a verse or a passage that would indicate that this is the way that God's people are to invite or beckon or call people to respond to the gospel by means of or by the mode of an altar call. So this is the second heading. This is considering the scriptures. Number one, one of the things that we ought to acknowledge right up front is that whether you're talking about an altar call at the end of a service or you're talking about the act of baptism or you're talking about meeting with the pastor in his office or anything like that, in and of themselves, none of those things are a guarantee of salvation. Right? The confidence that we have that people will be brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is what Jesus himself says in John chapter 10. So turn to John chapter 10 if you have your Bible with you. John chapter 10, look at verses 3 and 4, and then we can skip to verse 16 as well, which sort of repeats the same idea in a slightly different with a slightly different idea. John 10, 3, Jesus talking about being the shepherd of the sheep, says, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Skip down to verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I think he's talking about the Gentiles there. So primarily talking about, he's calling out the Jewish sheep. And then here in 16, he's alluding to the fact that he's going to be calling Gentile sheep. But it's the same thing. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The core of our confidence when it comes to the saving work is not our call at the end of a service, but it's the call of Christ that's being heard by his sheep that he's drawing to repentance and faith, that he's drawing to salvation, okay? And then with that, you see that what Jesus goes on to to teach or to instruct his disciples, for example, in Matthew 28 So, flip over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, of course, the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I don't think it's pressing the matter too far to say, at least in our context on on this particular topic and point of conversation, that what Jesus is calling us to do is to make disciples, not make professions. Okay? Okay? It's not that a disciple will not profess faith. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
But as we'll, we'll discuss in just a few moments here, there is a slight concern that we, that we ought to have when the emphasis on being united with Christ is placed on the, on the aspect or on the act of walking the aisle or making a profession when Jesus is saying that what we're doing is making disciples. See, one of the things that happens in, in Matthew 28 here is the, even the language that Jesus uses he uses, if I can say it this way, very slow, deliberate language. Make disciples. How long does it take to make a disciple? Okay, well, one, yes, you could say a lifetime, right? Discipleship is for life. Make disciples. He says after that, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Right? So making disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded, those are not things that happen overnight, spontaneously. In the sense that you, you snap your fingers and you're there. Furthermore, the, the other thing that's interesting to note is that nowhere in, in Scripture, at least not in the way that we tend to, to use the language or refer to it, it's very interesting to note that, that you never really see in Scripture a call to, um, to find your assurance of salvation in a point in time. Right? In other words, because you profess faith, that's how you can know that you belong to Christ, right? There, there is in the scriptures a call to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith now at this moment, which means that even if you walk the aisle when you are 10 years old or 20 years old, that's all fine and good, that's great, but in and of itself, walking the aisle is not a sign of salvation. Continuing in the faith is the sign of salvation, Furthermore, before Jesus ever gets to this instruction at the end of Matthew, you have his teaching in Matthew 13 about the different, the, well, we, depending on what you call it, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. So flip back to Matthew chapter 13. And just for the sake of time, go to where Jesus is explaining the parable, starting in Matthew 13, verses 18 and following. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and, notice, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So according to, according to Jesus, what is, what is the more reliable sign or indication of salvation? 
fruit. Fruit that requires observation, requires or at least invites, implies a watching, a certain deliberate waiting and listening and talking, right? Anyone, for example, as Jesus will go on to say, anyone, and in fact, many people, even in Jesus' ministry, professed or claimed to be followers of him, but then found that once things got difficult, they checked out, or they were following Jesus for the wrong motives, or even here, that some people can give what to the external or the natural eye looks like a positive response to the word that's been preached. They respond with joy to what they've heard, but even with a joyful response, we come to find out later that they have no root in themselves. They were never part of God's kingdom, although they may have looked at it in the early goings. Now, that being said, I think at the very least what that does is, is that it cautions us not to look for very quick instantaneous signs that would give us false assurance of someone's of genuine faith, particularly as we're, we're looking at another, well, professing brother or sister. All right. That being said, though, there is no doubt that there is a way that God's people do publicly profess their faith, and that is by baptism. Baptism is the way, the biblical means by which those people who come to faith in Christ publicly profess their faith. It's baptism. So, notice with me in some of these passages. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, Peter has just concluded his sermon on the day of Pentecost. By, this, this would even be helpful. Look at the way that Luke records the conclusion to Peter's sermon, and then notice how things transpire from there. So start with me at verse 36. Here's the close. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <laughs> he, listen, even this goes contrary to our normal way of inviting people to Christ, right? You hear what Peter just did? He ends on a note in which they are left having to own their guilt, he ends on the fact that in spite of their rejection of Christ, Christ nevertheless accomplished the Father's plan, defeated sin and death, and the one who came to save you, you rejected and you killed, period. End of the sermon. <laughs> and then the people hearing that, the people respond, the hearers. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, verse 38, 
Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does Peter, for these people who are acknowledging, confessing their sin guilt and their desire to be free of it, what does Peter call on them to do? Repent and be baptized. Baptism, beginning with John the Baptist in the Gospels, baptism is the mark, is the sign that you are repenting of your sins, desiring to be made clean and made new in the eyes of God. Of course, now what John uh, John's baptism of repentance and preparation is fulfilled in the true cleansing baptism that comes through the Spirit of Christ because of His work. But even so, baptism remains the sign or the mark that someone has entered into faith. Turn a few pages over to Acts chapter 10. Peter again, this time with Cornelius in a household of Gentiles, and start in verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, that is, while he was preaching and teaching Christ, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the, uh, to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. Here again, whether in Acts chapter 2, with a predominantly, if not, well, probably exclusively Jewish audience in Pentecost, or with Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, when there is good reason, and by the way, I think this is a pretty good reason when you see a dramatic, miraculous move of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit falls, and they give evidence of that. There is no doubt that this is salvation, and Peter marks that salvation by baptism. Look at Romans chapter 6. Here is Paul's teaching. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, not all of us who have professed Christ Jesus, although that's true, but all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What does Paul consider to be the mark, the sign of union with Christ? Baptism. Anyone who belongs to Christ, at least as far as the early church was concerned, was baptized. So far as we can tell, in the New Testament, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. You can't find it. And then last, but not least, good old Peter again, 1 Peter chapter 3. 
verse 21, after using the, the story of Noah and God saving Noah and his family through the waters of judgment, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Baptism saves you. Now, if you stop there, right, we would, we would be really uncomfortable. What? There's a, there's a work that saves us? I thought we were saved by grace through faith. Peter clarifies, though, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but here's what's happening in baptism for the one being baptized, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. The call or the profession, or as Peter says, what does he say? The appeal to God to be cleaned in your conscience comes in the sign or in the act of baptism. That is a sinner professing that they believe that it is Christ in His death and resurrection who washes them of their sin. And baptism, not the physical act, but what physical baptism signifies, the spiritual baptism that the Spirit executes by placing us into the body of Christ, that seals someone in salvation. Not a profession of faith. A profession of faith comes with genuine salvation, comes with conversion. But the true sign of conversion, according to the Scriptures, is baptism. Okay? All right, so having said that, here are some pastoral concerns related to an altar call. Number one, it is difficult to get away from the idea that by opening up an altar call and by inviting people to come down and by them being received, especially in such a public nature, it is difficult to imagine that that will not in some way suggest or imply an affirmation of that profession of faith. Do you, do you understand what we mean by that? In other words, by virtue of the fact that you are basically inviting people to come down, sight unseen, in some cases, or faith unheard, whatever phrase you want to use, right? You're inviting them to come down and profess their faith. Then, then what do you do in that moment? Do you, do you affirm their profession of faith? Yes, no? All right, you don't have to answer. This, I'm, I'm just telling you, as a pastor, this is a genuine struggle, particularly if this person is coming down and there's been no contact or no interaction with this person, and they come to me saying that they want to give their life to Christ, and I don't know who they are, or let's say I do know who they are, but I don't know them well. The very fact then that, that a pastor or an elder would be put in a position where they then perhaps have to then present that person to the church to say, here is Bob, Bob has come down to profess faith in Christ. By virtue of the fact that an elder is making that kind of statement to the congregation, the implication is, the reasonable assumption on the part of the congregation is that this profession means something. And we don't have any clue 
how genuine or how credible that profession of faith is. Number two, there is no getting around the fact, and this is one of the things that this is one of the things I think that that oftentimes flies under the radar. We tend to put a lot of emphasis on what a profession of faith or what an altar call would mean for the person who is walking the aisle without taking a little bit more time to also consider that by doing, by, by continuing that practice or by, you know, having an altar call, that even that, not just for the person who participates individually, but the church as a congregation is being discipled by that mode or by that activity. In other words, at the very least, so if you're looking down at your outline there, the question has to be raised, are we looking for the evidence of conversion as described in the Scriptures? See, one of the concerns that, that I would have as a pastor is that if you condition a church to look for a walking of the aisle to be the sign of faith in Christ, that that's at, the, at best, okay? Let me, let me try to be very conciliatory. At best, that is an inadequate or insufficient sign because, once again, you just can't find that kind of test or examination being the end-all, be-all of seeing if someone is in the faith. Rather, the Scriptures invite us to examine ourselves. The Scriptures invite us to examine fruit. The Scriptures invite us to look and to see, has that person followed Christ, the one who they're professing to be Lord and Savior of their life, have they followed Christ by obedience to baptism? Baptism is a far more reliable sign of conversion, at least in the biblical sense, than walking the aisle. Number three, and some of these sort of all connect or they all sort of run together, but number three, an altar call doesn't allow the pastor to perform any diagnostic work. This sort of goes back to, to what we alluded to in number one, that, that by virtue of the fact that you call for people to come at the end of the service, and that seems, whether you intend it to be communicated this way or not, that seems to be taken as an affirmation if you walk the aisle, well, you, you must be in now, right? You must be in the faith because this is, that's what you're indicating as you come forward, right? But, but I'm sure probably, well, I would, I would assume most of us in here know that there are plenty of people who can say a good word here or say a good word there, and yet when you really begin to bore down, you really begin to question, I'm not really sure if they understand what in the world they're talking about. And I don't mean that in a hypercritical way. Right? So, for example, just this past week, I sat down with someone who's been attending our church for, I don't know, it must be a couple months now, sat with him for an hour, uninterrupted, over a cup of coffee, talking to him about faith in Christ, All right? At the end of an hour, I still was not convinced that he understood what it meant to be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. 
What would happen if that individual at the end of a service walked the aisle and came to make a profession of faith? He thought, by the way, he was talking, was exploring the opportunity or was wanting to talk about the possibility of baptism. Interestingly enough, so I said, well, before we talk about baptism, let's just talk about, you know, faith, do you know Christ is saving, you know, so on and so forth, because baptism doesn't save you, right? Baptism is the sign that you have been saved. And so if that's the sign that you have been saved, well, what we need to talk about is, have you been saved, right? So if over an hour's worth of conversation, I still get to the end of a conversation and with all the desire that I can muster, I'm genuinely looking for signs that this man understands the gospel, understands that salvation is through faith in the finished work of Christ. And I can't detect or discern that he has a genuine, even a basic understanding of the faith. How will I be able to discern that in the span of 60 seconds as we're singing a hymn or a ver I'm sorry, singing a verse to a hymn? right? Can, can we sing the hymn 20 times over while, while we talk for an hour up front, right? We've almost preached for an hour. You're ready to go home. I need another hour, and we're just getting started after 60 minutes. The other thing is, you also have to ask yourself things like, not only do they understand the gospel, do they understand that salvation is synonymous with following Christ, right? That it's not just that he saves us, that Jesus is our ticket out of hell. But that for those who have genuinely been saved by Christ, you are made a new person. And if you have been made new, that means you're going to be following Christ for the rest of your life. This is not a get out of jail free card. And once you get your stamp on the ticket, you're good to go, right? You have people who come and who talk to you and say they want to talk about becoming a member of the church or they want to become a Christian or they want to be baptized. And when you ask them why, right, they'll give all kinds of different reasons, some of which are not necessarily bad. They're just, they're just not on the mark, right? Because here, here's what happens. You, you preach a sermon, right, or, or the word is being preached, and let's say it's a passage about the peace of God that passes all understanding, this person's life is anything but peaceful. They're in turmoil and disarray. And the sound of having a life filled with peace appeals to them like nothing else. What do they hear when they hear that Jesus gives peace if that's all that they hear? They just hear, Jesus is going to make my life better. They don't necessarily hear, Jesus has come to take my life. And so they can come with, with whatever understanding they have with the best of intentions, according to their understanding, wanting to have something of what you say that Jesus offers, but not knowing that you only get that peace when you get Jesus. And you only get Jesus when Jesus gets you, right? People, that, that's, that's not intuitive. 
It's also not normal or not natural. By nature, we are not people who want to give ourselves over to someone else and relinquish all authority and all of our rights and privileges. Nobody wants to say, from here on out, I want to take up my cross and die daily. Unless you've met Christ. And then you say, if suffering with Christ gives me glory with Christ in the end, I'll take that deal. Right? But not everyone understands that right away. And that's the, that's the difficulty then that is, placed, that is placed on a pastor or on an elder when you have an altar call at the end of the service that you have people come down and you have no idea what their background is. You have no idea what they understand themselves to mean when they say that they want to ask Jesus into their heart or they want to follow Jesus. You need to take time to sit and to ask questions, to talk with them, to walk them through the gospel, to make sure that they really, truly understand. Jesus himself said, by the way, that one of the marks or one of the signs of true discipleship is that you count the cost. When you have the opportunity to talk to someone further, you ought to seize on that, on that opportunity to be able to give them a fuller, more specific, detailed picture of what life in Christ is all about. And it is very hard, from my vantage point, and maybe this is just because of my limitations, I'll, I'll own that, right? my limitations, I find that very difficult, if not impossible, to do in the span of 60 seconds. I just don't feel comfortable with that. And here's the last thing that I'll say. The reason, especially, that I don't feel comfortable with doing something like that is because of the fact that you may inadvertently give someone a false assurance of salvation. There is there are very few things in this life when it comes to spiritual matters that are more destructive than someone thinking that they have Christ when in fact they don't. Of thinking that a congregation of believers are affirming their profession of faith when there is nothing for us to affirm. But because we have received them on a brief word only, they, they say, well, they're the, they're the ones who are the experts. They know what they're doing. I must be good. I would rather take a week or two or five or six to talk with someone over and over again, to let Christ draw them in with his word to see fruit, to see evidence of the fact that God is doing a work on their life, and to do that slowly and carefully rather than passing a quick seal of approval on someone that is only going to end up running the risk that they go very comfortable with a false assurance into eternal judgment. It's just a dangerous, dangerous risk. Okay, let me pause there. All right, any questions or clarifications as it pertains to an altar call. Charles, do you have a question? I'll give you a comment in a minute. Let me take questions first. All right. 
Sean, and then I'll go back to Zach. Yes. Do you, do you worry then if you if you don't have an altar call of the reverse that there is a genuine faith that you as as a leader of Christ followers or as a church body that there is someone who is genuinely Ah, uh, yes, good question. You, you don't, you don't Very good question, okay? Devious son, right? Trying to turn it on. So I'll repeat the question. Okay. So you're saying he didn't use the dad language, but you could see it in his eyes. Are you concerned, you say that you're concerned about the fact that in giving an altar call, you might give someone false assurance, right? Of, of, of uh, yeah, false assurance, all right? What about the flip side? Are you worried or concerned that by not having an altar call, you may lose someone who feels or believes that the Lord is drawing them, who, who does have the Lord working on their heart, but because you don't have an altar call, what, what do they do, right? Where do they get? You've lost them. To which I would say, no, that's a, that's a very good question, but no, I haven't lost them just like I haven't saved them. Christ saves. If Jesus says... I call my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and they come. Here's what I know for certain, that it is in the call of our Savior through His Word that hearts are made new and regenerated, so that if that person, in their heart, not uttering a sound to anyone else in the sanctuary, has in their hearts responded in faith, to the saving work of Jesus Christ because of the work of the Spirit, and they walk out of this sanctuary and are struck by a speeding car as they go across the crosswalk. Today, they will be in paradise. Why? Because a profession of faith is not what saves them. Baptism is not what saves them. Christ saves them through faith. If, and, and let's be honest, this is why I say I don't think it's sinful to do an altar call, right? I'm not saying that. There are plenty of people who do genuinely profess faith in Christ by walking the aisle. I'm not denying that at all. But this is the simple point that I'm trying to make. Their genuine faith does not become any more real or genuine by virtue of them walking down the aisle at the end of a service. Their faith is real because God has worked in their heart and mind, and, that, and the reality of that saving faith will bear fruit in baptism, in obedience, in growing trust, in a hunger and desire for God's Word. So I, what I would do as a pastor is, is I would say, I have no more concern about someone missing out on salvation because they miss an altar call than I would have about someone missing out on salvation because they miss out on baptism. If Jesus can say to the thief on the cross, right, who just simply says, please just think of me, right? Remember me when you're with your father. Right? Just that simple appeal, and Jesus says, a, a faith response, Jesus says, today you'll be with me. Right? Yeah, Paul. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I said Zach after, after Sean. Sorry. Zach. Yes. 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 Okay, yeah, Zach is saying, but there, there are other things that happen in an altar call. So, for example, you can have an altar call, and that might not necessarily be a time where, where someone comes down to profess faith, but it could be an opportunity for members of the church to, to come down and pray. That, that's all fine and good, and, and I'll just say for the purposes of this conversation, I'm, that's, that's sort of a little bit apples and oranges, right? I, uh, yes and no. It, yeah, if there's, the, the question is, is there another time to do that? And I think part of that, what, I mean, this may end up going into another Sunday night discussion. No, 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 it's an excellent question. Part of that question goes to the nature of corporate prayer, right? How prayer is to function in the, in the gathering of God's people and the way that prayer functions not just at the corporate level but also at the individual and private level. I think you need both of those things happening, not one or the other. Um, so in that respect, I think that, I think that that, though, would be something different. If you're using an altar call, so to speak, if that's what you want to call it, as an opportunity for people to come and pray, that would be sort of a, a different animal, for lack of a better expression, a different animal than using an altar call for someone to come and, and you know... They can. Yeah, they can. Yes. Yeah, and I, and I understand that. Uh, Paul. Okay, coming down for prayer? Yeah. Okay, uh, Mr. Douglas. Yes, yeah, good question. Mr. Douglas is asking, okay, what, what if you use the altar call as an, as an opportunity to, you know, you, you, however you want to say it, you give the invitation or you, or you give someone the opportunity to come, they come, and then let's say, uh, like maybe at the end of the service, the service concludes and you take that time because they've come down to then enter into those conversations where you're able to ask them questions and everything. That, Yes, okay, yes, even before the next baptism or before, you know, before something else happens. I would say, yes, that would be a far better way of practicing an altar call, but, but here's what I would fall back on, and I'm not trying to be cute, okay? Understand, it's an excellent question. But if that's the way that you're going to do an altar call, right, that, 
okay, someone is going to come, and then, well, thank you for coming. Wait here. We'll talk after the service, right? That's something that's done on a regular basis here already without an altar call, right? I mean, just today, I, I sat and sat with someone on that pew, back, well, that little short pew in the very back for like 30, 45 minutes talking about the scriptures after everyone had left, right? And so there, for people who do use an altar call and, and who, who, use it, um, who use it well or use it effectively, and I would say, just to be clear, I think this is one of the things that, that Edgewood did um, when they used an altar call, right? You would, you would do things. When people come down, you would, you would get them into, say, uh, a new member class or a new believer class or something like that. And you would have opportunities to continue to follow up. So please don't, don't misunderstand or I don't want to miss... Um, I don't want to insinuate that this church was playing fast and loose with people who were making professions of faith. I don't believe that to be the case, okay? Please don't misunderstand that, okay? But there again, I think that, uh, I think that the, the way to go about doing that is to essentially make it known to create an environment, a culture, to use a buzzword, to create a culture here at this church where people know that what they can do after they hear the word preached is to talk to someone who's sitting in the pew next to them or to speak to an elder after the, the service is completed, to have those conversations. And, and just as someone who is doing that, I'm, I can tell you, and some of our other elders who are here today can tell you, those things are actually happening, right? This, the, right? Just so we all can can remind ourselves the Lord is still being good and gracious to bring new members into Edgewood even though we, we are not exercising an altar call in the way that we once did. We're still baptizing people even though we're, we're not necessarily using an altar call. So the Lord is still drawing people in. We're desirous of that. We pray for it in our elder meetings. I pray for it privately, right? Lord, continue to do your work. Bring people to church. Convert people. And those things are happening. But yes, if you were to use an altar call, I think that is what you would want to do. You would not want to present someone too quickly as if to give them, you know, sort of the church's stamp or seal of approval. You would want to then say, because you came down, you're indicating that you want to follow Christ or that you want to place your trust in him. Let's talk about that. And I think in many cases, in many ways, that's exactly what we have been doing here at Edgewood, and, and we've seen some good fruit coming from those, those kinds of conversations. Yes. Uh-huh. Keep it brief. Okay, keep it brief. Make it brief. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. Thank you, Charles. Thanks. Okay? Last thing I'll say, unless there's, a, unless there's another question. Here's what, this, this, is, it, this is, as one of the elders here, this is my desire and my prayer for Edgewood. All right? I think specifically back to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember how that goes, right? Lord's taking Philip, tells him, hey, go down here. He goes down. Lo and behold, here comes an Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading from the Isaiah scroll. And Philip says to him as the chariot comes up, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So Philip hops in the chariot, and he begins to preach Christ to him from Isaiah 53. And Philip explains to him about salvation in Christ through his death and resurrection, to which the Ethiopian says, as he now understands and sees some water, hey, there's water over there. What prevents me from being baptized? Here's what I would love to see begin to develop at Edgewood. I would love to see Edgewood become the kind of church that when we know that there is a new attender in the congregation or someone that we have just recently been introduced with, that at the end of a service, we just in very friendly, non-confrontational, very casual ways, just ask, what did you think about the service? Did you understand what we were talking about? Right? Give them opportunities. Invite them. You do the work of an evangelist. And see if the Lord is not already drawing that person to himself because of the word that they're hearing preached. Because the two things, I've, this is consistent. When we have new members, either who come by way of baptism, a, a new profession of faith, or you know, transferring to the church, the two things that they say most consistently when they join, two things that stand out to them. Number one, the word, Right? The, the thing that they can't get over is how much we saturate ourselves in the Word. And that's not, they're, they're not patting ourselves on the back. They're hungry for it. That's a good sign. That's a sign of life, right? Like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the Word. And the other thing that they say is the love in the congregation. Over and over and over again. So that the combination of those two things... Your demonstration of love and concern for this new face, asking them if they're understanding what it is that we're talking about, what we're praying for, what we're singing about, is itself one of the best ways that God is going to be bringing people not only into the church as new members, but bringing people into the kingdom by way of conversion. And that real life-on-life -life interaction is far more valuable and far more lasting than any quick, short, brief transaction in the 60 seconds of the end of a service. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you that no matter what our practice is, that it's you who does the work of saving. We don't want to be indifferent to the habits that we cultivate. And we want to be sensitive. We do not want to be legalistic. We don't want to be lackadaisical. Uh, we want to see what you have prescribed and what you have given us in your scriptures as a way to build and grow your church. 
And so, Father, I thank you and I praise you for the rich history that Edgewood has of preaching faithfully your word, of salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ according to the power of your spirit, and that whether by use of an altar call or by conversations after the service or cups of coffee during the week through whatever means necessary that you have faithfully brought men and women to this church to be united to Christ and to this body because of your work in their heart. Give us a desire to see more of that, to be hungry and eager to take part in it. Give us, Father, a desire to see your name glorified because of the work of your Son through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.